This is episode number 108 of Unfolding Words. My name is Antracia, and welcome to my weekly podcast aimed at sharing biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Before we unfold the word, I need to talk about the elephant in the room, namely my absence. I ended this podcast rather abruptly back in, I think it was November, because I got a job offer that came literally out of the blue and my schedule and everything changed pretty much overnight. So something had to go and unfortunately it was the podcast. But now that I'm on summer break from school, I think I announced that I'm working on my master's degree in Old Testament. So I'm on break from graduate school and I've settled into a routine at work. I figured I would come back for a summer season. So here I am. Thank you so much to those of you who have encouraged me during my absence. Those of you who follow me on social media or know me in person. I so appreciate those of you telling me, yes, I will be here when you come back. So thank you so much. I so appreciate that. So today I want to talk about this idea of Jesus being a personal savior or having a personal walk with the Lord. This makes Christianity sound like it's a solitary one person thing. We think sometimes, or there are those people who think that we can live this Christian life without others. When we make a decision to live for Jesus, we are not doing it covertly. We're not doing it undercover. The decision to follow Jesus affects our lives and the lives of those around us. And our decision is personal only in the fact that we have to make it. But living for God means living in community with others. So that's what we're going to talk about today, living with others or understanding the importance of one another. So there's five commands that I'm going to talk about today that deal with one another, this phrase, one another. And Paul mentions them in his epistles. So the first is to love one another. Paul writes, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. And in the scripture, Paul uses the term brotherly affection or love to emphasize the familial nature of the body of believers. In other words, in brotherly love, be affectionate one to another in giving honor or outdoing each other. The word outdo means to prefer or to go before, to take the lead, that is, or to show an example. How opposite the world is. We are to take the lead in showing love. The world wants us to take the lead in being successful, being the one with the most followers. But we know that the world is contrary to the ways of the scripture. And this term, be kindly affectionate, is only here in the New Testament. It's the natural kind of love of a family or people who are kindred, of the people and the king, and of a God for his people. The word here represents Christians who were tied together by a family connection. It is intended to specifically carry the definition of brotherly love. 
and the phrase in honor preferring one another, this verb only occurs here. It means to go before as a guide. Honor is the honor due from each to all. So everyone should be showing honor to everyone else if you are a Christian. As Christians, we are to lead the way in showing the honor that is due to our brothers and sisters. And as Paul writes, he encourages Christians to pursue a sincere love and to do good in their relationships with other believers. Honor one another above yourselves could also be translated in honor, prefer one another. That's how Paul puts it in Philippians 2 and 3. Consider others better than yourselves. And this similarity in definition, it suggests that Paul already has his eye on the problems that are existing with disunity in the Roman church. So love in the scripture acts like the circulatory system in the spiritual body. It helps all the members to function in a healthy and a harmonious way. Preferring one another means treating others as more important than ourselves. And all of our duty to other people is summed up in this one word or this one act, love. This points to the love of parents to their children, which is a tender and a natural love that's unforced. It just flows naturally from the parents to the children. And the Christians are one family and they should honor one another and love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. The second command of this phrase, one another, is to live in harmony with one another. Romans 12 and 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Being of the same mind means that you have the feeling of the common bond, which binds all Christians to each other, whether you're of a different race, whether you come from a different economic status, whether you have a different temperament or gifts, there is this common bond that exists. So as we determine to set our minds, not on high things, but to associate with the humble, the definition that is meant by this phrase is that you're being led away with the lowly things or people. You're being drawn into sympathy with them. One commentator suggests that it means letting the lowly lead you by the hand. The lowly things ought to have such a force of attraction for the Christian that it's this following after lowly things is desirable above all other things. The idea here is to allow yourself to be guided by them in how you conduct yourselves with other people. This is what caused Paul to enter into humble situations and to describe himself in such a humble manner. And the problem today is that Christians think too much of themselves, don't they? You can go on social media, scroll accounts and see how much Christians think of themselves. And Paul warns the Christians in Rome about this, and he encourages them to extend their sympathetic concern even to the people who have a lower social status than them. The word humble that Paul uses here is tepanos, and he refers to those first century Christians who could boast of little in the way of worldly goods or their social position. 
And Paul reminded them that they must enter into the feelings of others. And it's not just sympathy. Sympathy says, oh, I see you and I'm sorry. Christian fellowship is more than that. It's more than just a pat on the back and a handshake and saying, oh, I see your situation. It involves empathy. That's the goal. It means sharing the burdens and the blessings of your brothers and sisters so that we all grow together and glorify the Lord. If Christians cannot get along with one another, how can they ever face their enemies? Jesus ministered to the common people. We see that time and time again in the New Testament, and they received him gladly because of this. And when a local church decides it only wants a certain status of people or people who or on a certain economic level, it departs from the way that scripture intended for us to live. Nothing is below us except sin. So we are to be of the same mind. Everyone is to be of the same mind. Everyone must think this way for this idea to succeed in the family of God. Like-mindedness is a two-way street. So those who are of a lower state must think this way about those who are of a higher social or economic status. And those who are higher must think the same way as those who they may think are lower than them. When Paul calls on the Christians to be like-minded, there's this natural assumption that leads us to believe that Christians are not to be arrogant or dwell on arrogant things. There is a don't do A, but do B instead structure to how Paul writes. There's an antidote to pride, and it is associating with the lowly. And it may seem that Paul is encouraging those who are on the upper rungs of the social ladder, since it requires there to be lower rungs, but that would be thinking about what Paul is saying too narrowly. The ugly truth is that we can rank people as above us or below us in any way. We can always think of someone who has more than us or less than us, no matter the context. One reason is that we have a predisposition to sin that leads us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, which means that we automatically think of others as being below us. Another reason is that the same sinful inclination also makes us look for someone else above us whom we can jealously resent for achieving a position that we aspire to. This thinking is wrong on any level, whether we're looking up or we're looking down. But a lot of times we fall into these traps all too often. So Paul has a remedy for this sinful inclination of ours that calls for redirecting our interest away from ourselves and toward others. So we have to embrace this vision of the gospel that Paul says will mean embracing this idea of democracy in the Christian life, realizing that we have to destroy all financial, social, and physical distinctions and level the playing field when it comes to power in the body of Christ. Now, the next command for one another is don't judge one another. And in Romans 14 and 13, it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
So the context for this, real quick, let me lay out the context. The Christian church is a new community. And in Rome, Christians of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds are going into one another's houses, sharing the same meals for the first time in their lives. And what happens is the strong in in the church who have a stronger spiritual life are creating for the weak or those who are newly saved a situation for sin or a stumbling block where they're continuing to eat food that the weak consider unclean. And Paul himself had this conviction that no food is unclean in and of itself. So he aligned himself with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Unclean would denote a ritual impurity. And Paul understood that the Christians in Rome would understand that Jesus Christ's coming meant that the Jewish laws about ritual purity no longer applied. But he also understood that the Jewish Christians would have difficulty letting go a lifetime of teaching and habit and ritual. So he reminds the strong ones that if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. And although Paul here does not use the word, he clearly is concerned that the conscience of those weak believers would be violated if they give in to the pressure to eat food that they believe to be unclean. So bottom line, we see here Christians affect one another, even in the smallest of ways, even with regard to what they believe is worthy to be eaten. Think about the possible ways we can affect each other. We can cause others to stumble. We can grieve others. We even have the power to destroy others. And Paul was speaking of the way the strong Christian affected the weak Christian. Knowledge and love must work together. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The strong Christian has spiritual knowledge, but if he does not practice love and walk in it, his knowledge will hurt the weak Christian. Knowledge has to be balanced by love. We have to remember that. And often little children are afraid of the dark. Think about them thinking that something is hidden in the closet. And of course, as parents, we know that the child is safe. There's nothing in the closet. There's no boogeyman under the bed. But the knowledge that the parent has cannot alone assure or comfort the child. You can never argue with a child into letting go of that fear that something's in the closet or under the bed. And when a parent or mother, and I know this experience very well, sits at the bedside of that scared child and talks so lovingly to the child and assures them that everything is safe and secure, that the child can go to sleep without fear, it doesn't always work. You have to understand where that child is and that this fear is very real to them. Knowledge plus love helps the weak person grow strong. So let us not therefore judge. That means let us not assume the office of judge over or use this judgment and say, I decide and I think it's good. So let us not therefore judge one another, but judge rather this, the scripture says. And this phrasing has a sort of play on words of the word judge and its meaning. And it could be said, but let this be your judgment, not to put a stumbling block in front of your brother or sister. Instead, 
a Christian should judge himself and his actions so that he does not place a stumbling block, which is literally something a person trips over or an obstacle, which is a trap or a snare or anything that leads another person to sin in your brother's way. So we can hold different opinions. We can easily place more value on our own ideas than on those held by the person that we are disagreeing with. But instead of judging or belittling those that we are differing with, we need to be very careful not to cause them to stumble and to keep in mind that we will all give an account before God for our actions. So our ultimate goal must be to help all believers grow into spiritual maturity and not to hinder their progress. The next commandment of one another comes out of Roman fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we also know that we need to welcome others. You can't live a solitary life and try to welcome another. That involves doing life with others. If Christ received us and he bears with us all of our weaknesses, then we have to be compassionate with one another. And by doing this, God will be glorified. And so the goal of interpersonal relationships among Christians is a unification when it comes to giving God glory. Paul ended his commands with accept one another or keep on accepting or receiving one another's. So we have a model of the acceptance of Christians in that the Lord Jesus accepted us. The Lord received believers when they were not only powerless, literally weak, but also ungodly, sinners, and enemies. So certainly, we as Christians can receive others who are different from us on non-essential matters. And Jesus Christ received them so that they could bring praise to God, which is the purpose of Christian unity. And Paul goes on to remind the Gentiles that Christ continues to be concerned about and reach out to Jews. Jesus Christ had a ministry to Jews, but he also had a bigger purpose for the sake of God's faithfulness to his promise. And these promises made to the patriarchs included the blessing of all the nations. So the result is that the Gentiles are able to join in with the Jews in glorifying God for his mercy. And since this was the case, the Jewish Christians have to recognize that the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God is part of God's plan and has always been part of God's plan. This chapter, chapter 15 in Romans, shows that people from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds struggled with accepting one another. Jesus, as the Christ, was born a Jew. He ministered to Israel to fulfill Old Testament promises and prophecies. And his main purpose was for Israel but he also had a plan for the nations, which included the Gentiles. And our fifth and final command is instruct one another. Romans 15 and 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul says, I myself am satisfied, which means he's saying, I stand convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness 
and complete knowledge, which means they have been filled with all knowledge and they have an understanding of the full scope of the Christian truth so that they're able, competent to instruct, to counsel, to admonish one another. Paul did not have a low opinion of the Roman Christians. We see that through this verse. He considered them to be spiritually informed and spiritually mature. Then why did he have to write on these basic Christian themes then? So he did this to keep with his desire to establish good relations with the Christians in Rome. Paul makes it clear that he has written not because he finds some problem in the church there. He wants to commend the Roman believers for their goodness and their knowledge and their understanding of the Christian faith. He notes that they themselves have the ability to instruct one another. And this is not flattery. Paul would not have said what he has in these verses unless he believed that the Roman church was solid and stable. He wanted them to trust that God would use their knowledge and their goodwill toward one another to keep moving forward. They shouldn't just stand still and wait for his next letter to tell them what to think and do. Paul was convinced that the Roman Christians were gifted by God for effective service and to make their church a healthy one. God does not build his church without seeing to those needs. And same for us. God knows if you're a mature believer that you're able to teach and encourage one another. So the bottom line here is that as we live out our Christian lives, we have to do it with other people. Yes, we make a decision for Christ on our own. But once we make that decision, we have to know that our lives are going to involve other people. You're going to have to live with other Christians as brothers and sisters. And if you know anything about brother-sister relationships, sometimes they're messy. Sometimes things get crazy. Sometimes there's bickering and fighting. But on the flip side of that, there's a unity. There's a oneness. There's this camaraderie that comes from being born in the same household that no one else can enter into unless they're born into that family. So that's what God wants from us. He wants us to live with one another, to love one another, to live in harmony with one another, not to judge one another, to welcome one another, and to be confident that we can instruct one another. That's it for this episode of Unfolding Words. It's good to be back behind the mic. I'll be back next week. I would so appreciate if you'd share the podcast or tell a friend about it. Until next week, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.